text this is in Matthew chapter 11, uh, verses 25 through 30. Jesus gives true rest, is what I've titled the message. And really, after children's moment, you've pretty much heard it. So, But uh, I always say I do the children's moment for the sake of the adults. Maybe the kids will get something out of it too. But anyway, uh, let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your, your word now. Give me grace to teach accurately and clearly in a way that is a blessing to our souls. We, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, who is our wonderful Savior. Uh, that is for all of us who believe in him. And uh, the rest that we find in him. We rejoice in that. So help me to teach accurately uh, for the good of your people. And Lord, if anyone's listening that has not yet come to Jesus, is not yet resting in him, that even today they would come. They would come in faith and uh, believe on him for who he is as, as our wonderful Savior, our risen Lord. I pray in his name. Amen. All right. Well, you note uh, the uh, outline here, and we have worked our way through. The theme is Christ the King. And we are down in that section. Christ has presented all kinds of, there's all kinds of lines of evidence that he is the, the prophesied, promised Messiah. Well, the issue is now what will be the response of the people? And their response is largely one of rejection. He came into his own, and his own received him not, as we find in John 1.11. Well, as Israel uh, was presented all kinds of evidence, uh, they did not receive Jesus, as I say. They were non-responsive to both the ministry of the forerunner, John the Baptist, and that of Jesus, the Messiah. Well, this rejection brought with it a a change in the ministry of Christ that we noted last week. The miraculous evidence had been extensive. I mean, Christ healed everyone in lots of contexts, lots of cities. So the evidence had been extensive, and since they had rejected it, Christ now denounces them. In Matthew 11, 20, it says, He began to rebuke the cities in which most of His mighty works had been done, Why? What was the problem? Because they did not repent. Jesus then singled out three cities in particular for special condemnation, namely Chorazin, Bethsaida, and his adopted hometown of Capernaum, saying it will be worse for them in the day of judgment than for wicked pagan cities. Well, that brings us to where we are in our study this morning. Uh, Brings us to Matthew 11, 25 through 30. In effect, Jesus had been presenting himself to the nation of Israel, which, as seen in their representative leaders, had largely rejected him. Consequently, Jesus now focuses upon individuals, inviting them to come to him individually and find rest in him. So Matthew eleven twenty through 24 describes the condemnation of those rejecting him, while now in verses 25 through 30, we have the description or the blessing of rest on those accepting him. Let's pick it up, verse 25. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. When it says at that time, in context here, it's emphasizing the time of the Lord's rejection. This is Christ's response. I thank you. And that phrase, I thank you, literally means to acknowledge or to confess, coupled with a sense of praise. Uh, D.A. Carson's got a good statement here as far as uh, the the summary, of as far as the sense or the nuance of this word. Uh, When this verb, thank, is used with respect to God, the person praying acknowledges who God is, the propriety of his ways, and the excellence of his character. That's the sense of it. So in this prayer, Jesus uses two descriptive titles for God, namely Father, and then also Lord of heaven and earth. Father emphasizes God's sovereign, superintending, overall position. Lord of heaven and earth emphasizes him as being sovereign master overall. Lord is the idea of master very consistently. So both underscore the idea of sovereign authority. Jesus is thanking God the Father, the Lord of heaven and earth, for who he is as the sovereign one over all. And aren't you glad there's a sovereign one over all this morning? I mean, when you look at the world leaders that are on the stage today, it's really 
something to see. Uh, it's amazing what passes for leadership lots of times. But I'm, I'm thankful there's a, there's a sovereign authority over it all. And, and in the midst of this rejection that Jesus Christ was facing, he didn't say, well, it looks like all's lost. No, he didn't. He came back and he thanked God for being the sovereign one. That he is still on the throne. He's still in control no matter what things might look like. In context, there is a strong emphasis that nothing can thwart the sovereign will of God. Even this strong rejection by the nation at large did not mean that God was not in control. He was still sovereign, and he always remained sovereign. This is the bedrock truth that everything comes back to. God is sovereign. And as the one who has absolute sovereign authority, Jesus acknowledges that the Father has hidden some things. He has hidden these things from the wise and prudent, and he has revealed He has revealed them to babes. This is God's way, and Jesus praised the Father for it. Remember, this is the context of rebuking the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done. They didn't get it. They didn't see the truth of who Christ was. They didn't see the one behind the miracles for who he was. They didn't connect the power of his kingdom miracles with Jesus being that promised Messiah King. And so we see in John chapter 12, verse 37, although he had done so many signs, that is miracles, although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. That was the issue. The signs were, excuse me, the signs were clearly there for all to see, and they are clearly held accountable for seeing, or in this case, not seeing. The sign miracles, what I call kingdom miracles, pointed to Jesus as being the promised Messiah who brings in the kingdom. But the wise and the prudent didn't see it. It was hidden from them. Well, we might ask a very good question at this point is, why didn't they see it? Well, we have an indicator in the immediate context in the previous verses of 23 and 24 where Jesus said to Capernaum that on judgment day it will be better for Sodom than for them. Because if Sodom had had the privilege of seeing what they saw in Christ's mighty works, the implication is that they would have repented. But what was Capernaum's key problem? Well, As we note back there, Jesus describes Capernaum as being exalted to heaven, which is a description of pride, pride. In other words, they were full of pride, exalting themselves to heaven like we're all that. So pride here is the idea of independent self-exaltation. And that doesn't go well with seeing the things of God. The wise and the prudent are here those who think themselves to be very wise and intelligent about spiritual matters. Thus, they were very proud of all their supposed wisdom, their spiritual wisdom. They were full of themselves. And sometimes people can be too smart for their own good. People think they're so smart and sophisticated, but they are not smarter than God, which is a kind of a dumb thing to even say. Of course, that's the case. Duh. In fact, in their puniness, they fail to see that God in his wisdom hides this truth, hides his truth from prideful self-wisdom that does not humbly rely upon God. This is the key point here. We can only know God's truth by humbly relying upon him. We never arrive at spiritual insight, spiritual wisdom through our own mental brilliance. I've known some proud people. Uh, I one time met a guy and he says, you know, I'm not like other people. He said, you keep having to read that Bible and read that. He says, I read through it once and I got it. (laughs) Okay. Okay. The problem here was not their intellect. You say, well, boy, it's good. I'm, I'm not very smart. That's a good place to be. I have a very small IQ. Uh, thank you, Lord, for blessing me. <laughs> uh, that's not the point. 
The problem here was not merely their intellect. It was not their, that their IQ was too high. The problem was intellectual pride that depends on human wisdom instead of on the revelation of God. You see, proud people think they can figure out spiritual truth by their own human intelligence. As a means of judicial judgment, God hides his truth from such people. That's, that's God's way. In all their supposed brilliance, they claim to be the all-wise ones, but in truth, they don't get it. God does not cater to prideful wisdom that thinks itself sufficiently wise and is therefore dependent upon the strength of their own intellect. John MacArthur says, <clears throat> Jesus' point in Matthew 11 was not that God withheld the truth from intelligent people. That's not the point. But rather that those who rely on their own cleverness cut themselves off from the truth. That's his point. And I'm sure you've met people as I have met people. In fact, I hate to say it, but sometimes I've been one of those people who kind of maybe come off like uh, we act like we know what we're talking about when really we don't know what we're talking about. And then you know what our pride does? We get back into a corner. We continue to, we continue to stand on that, like acting like we really do know what we're talking about. And pride won't let us off the hook. Pride is the besetting sin of mankind, and God hates pride, which in essence is the idea of operating independently of God. Humility humbles itself and says, God, I need your help. Pride says, I can do it. I can do it myself. I don't need God's help. God hides his truth from such an attitude. The Bible is clear that God gives grace to the humble. 1 Peter 5, 5 God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Want to be graced by God? Be humble. He doesn't cater to the pride of, of self-made people who think they can know truth apart from him. In truth, we only know the things of God by God's revelation. We totally need his help. The natural man, that's the unsaved person, does not receive the things of, of the Spirit of God. Why? Because they're spiritually priests. They're understood with the Spirit's help. Paul deals with this exclusively, extensively, I should say, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 through 3. Note a, a few references there. Where is the wise? The world kind of likes to boast of its wisdom all over the place. And so the question here is where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? The one who's going to present all the great arguments. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? I'd like to answer that. Yes. Yes, he has. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. The world through wisdom, they don't, through their brilliance, figure God out. So... It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached, as considered by the world, to save those who believe. This is God's method. And then again in chapter 3, let no one deceive himself. Because it is easy for people to deceive themselves here. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. You take the most intelligent person in the world who is not a believer, and all of his spiritual ideas are foolishness. All of them. He never has a great original spiritual thought. Not a single one. Those that think so are deceived. No one ever outsmarts God, and God works in such a way that we are totally dependent upon Him to know spiritual truth. And the key is to humble ourselves and admit it. That's where it starts, right there. Well, God has hidden these things. Uh, that is kingdom truth, as previously revealed by Christ's mighty works. In other words, in context, they have not seen the significance of Christ's miracles that point to Him as the Messiah King. God hides the truth of who Christ is from them because they are not reliant upon him. 
But while God has hidden these things from the wise, the self-wise, that is, he has revealed them to babes. Babes here refers to those who are not wise, not self-wise. They recognize their helplessness and are totally dependent upon God. That's the picture. They are humbled and in a position of dependence upon God to know his truth. Babes here depicts those with a teachable, humble, dependent spirit. Here was the problem with Israel. They they refused to assume the position of dependent babes. They were exalted to heaven, self-sufficient. They were not in the position of humble dependence, but rather in the position of prideful self-wisdom. And consequently, the spiritual things of the king and his kingdom were not revealed to them. And this sets us up for what we're going to see in the parables, where kingdom truth is hidden from these people, but revealed to the humble, the babes. So they had a pride problem. And you know what about the proud? The proud don't come to Jesus. Note that principle. The proud don't come to Jesus. They're self-satisfied in their self-righteousness, in their legalism, in their religion. And that was Israel. God says this in Isaiah chapter 57. For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit. To revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. You got this high and holy one. Who has fellowship with him? The humble. Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. Those that humble themselves before God and say, I'm spiritually bankrupt. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. God gives rest. Salvation to humble people. People filled with contrition, brokenness, a sense of dependency. There is no place for the proud. In 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 29, Paul says that God has chosen not many wise, and he has done this, doesn't say not any, by the way, but not many wise, and he has done this so that no flesh should glory in his presence. No one can strut their wisdom stuff before God. All the glory belongs to God alone. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. Excuse me, take a shot of my Coke here. Verse 26, even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. This is God's way of working, which he deems as good. And I, for one, am really glad that the smart Alex of the world are not given room to boast before God, or we'd never hear the end of it. It's a good thing that God humbles the proud. And gives grace to those who humble themselves before him. God reveals his truth to those who humble themselves before him. And those that refuse to humble themselves will never see the kingdom. This withholding of insight from the wise was not a matter of injustice, but rather a matter of judicial judgment. In their self-proclaimed wisdom, they rejected the light of God's truth as found in Christ. And so God removed the light from them. It's what we call judicial judgment. Verse 27, all things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Well, in verse 25, we see that Christ's emphasis on the Father's absolute authority. But now he says that all things have been delivered to me by my Father. The one who is sovereign over all has delivered all into Christ's sovereign care. You see, to be sovereign over all, in the case of both the Father, and then delivered to Christ, really speaks to the reality of deity. Only God is sovereign over all. And to further show you that the deity of both the Father and the Son are in view, note that phrase, my Father. 
Somehow a frog caught up with me this morning. Thank you for praying for me. Uh, This phrase, my father, indicates that Jesus shares in the very nature of God the Father. We see this uh, throughout the Gospels in Matthew 5, 18. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. Christ, in saying that God was his Father, was emphasizing that he shares in the very nature of God. And as such, he has a very unique, a totally unique relationship with God the Father. And his Father, that is the all-sovereign one, has delivered all things to him, showing that he is sovereign over all things as well. And in context, the all things here speaks of revelation. That's what we're talking about. Jesus is now the exclusive agent over the entire revelation of God. All divine knowledge is now committed to the Son. Jesus is in charge of who gets to know. And notice what the Bible says as we look at Colossians 2.3, speaking of Jesus, in whom are hidden all, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's talking about spiritual insights. And then Jesus says, no one knows the Son except the Father. There are incomprehensive mysteries about Christ. As Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.16, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. This union of deity and humanity in Christ boggles the mind. Where does one leave off and the other begin? Ever thought about that? For example, what about the issue of death? God cannot die, can he? Well, no, he can't. And yet, Jesus is God, and Jesus did die. His divine nature and his human nature are distinct, and yet somehow they are mysteriously brought together in one person, in the person of Christ. There's great mystery here. Great mystery here. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. The Father and the Son have an exclusive knowing relationship. No one completely knows the Son with perfect intimate knowledge except for the Father. And no one completely knows the Father with perfect intimate knowledge except for the Son. And no one ultimately knows them except for themselves. And they know each other perfectly. William MacDonald, ultimately only God is great enough to understand God. Man cannot know him by his own strength or intellect. That's the point. Well, if this is true, then how can God be known? Well, only by God revealing himself. We are dependent upon revelation. And even Christians sometimes kind of fall into this pride thing where we can figure out God if we just present enough intellectual arguments to people. They will never figure it out on their own. They just won't. And since the Son is now in charge of all things revelatory, the only ones who can know God are those to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Thus, we are completely dependent upon Jesus to disclose God to us. Want to know God? Well, you can only know him through Jesus. So when the Jews rejected Jesus, they closed themselves off from the only source of revelation that could really make God known to them, that being Jesus. Well, people can know something of God's power and wisdom from nature, but they can't really know his heart. They can't know his plans that center in the Messiah. They can't know his love. This is only known through the Son. To really know the intimate character of God, we have to know Christ. Back in the Old Testament, Moses asked to see God's glory. And God said that he would make his goodness, that is his character, to pass before him and proclaim the name of the Lord. 
Well, as the Lord passed before Moses, he proclaimed his attributes, such as merciful, gracious, long-suffering, goodness, and truth, etc. In other words, God revealing his glory to Moses involves showing him the essence of his glorious character, the kind of God that he truly is. And yet, note that Moses only saw the backside of God's glory, because God said, you cannot see my face, for no man can see for no man shall see me and live, Exodus thirty-three twenty. In other words, no one can see God in his full frontal glory and live. Only the Son knows the full glory of the Father, and only the Father knows the full glory of the Son. And yet, and yet, Jesus came to make God known to us on a level previously unknown. Jesus came to make God known for us by presenting the person of God, are you ready for this, in a human body. That's why he came. John chapter 1, verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. No one. That's consistent with Old Testament revelation. But then note, there is an exception here. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom, the most intimate of relationship, of the Father, He has declared Him. He has made Him known. John 14, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? This is totally unique to the Lord Jesus Christ. No one else in the history of all the prophets ever said, you know what, to see me is to to directly see God. No apostle ever made such a claim. Wycliffe Bible Commentary, the Son as the image of God is the revealer of the invisible God. He is the logos, the communication, the word, the expression of the unseen God. And we only get here supernaturally by the Holy Spirit, by the Lord Jesus Christ revealing it in person, the Holy Spirit taking that truth and applying it to our hearts. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness. When did he do that? Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, let there be light, a miracle. It is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts Another miracle, comparable to the creation miracle of light, has shown in our hearts to give the light, what light? Of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face, in the person of Jesus Christ. We see the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ, and we only really ultimately see that by the work of the Holy Spirit. Colossians 1.15, speaking of Christ, he is the image of the invisible God. A few more texts here. 1 John 5.20, we know that the Son of God has come. And what's he done? Well, has given us an understanding of what? That we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Jesus came to show us God. John 17, 3, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The way we know the one true God is through the agency of Jesus Christ. And key to what we know of God through Jesus Christ is the love of God. We only know the extent of God's love through Jesus Christ. And aren't you glad to know about the love of God this morning? Praise God that nothing can separate us from his love. How do we know about this love? Well, Romans is very clear. Romans 5, 8, and 9, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, not through some ritual, sacraments, uh, justified by his blood. We shall be saved from wrath through him. And then again in 1 John 4, 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us. It was revealed that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. 
And this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation. That is the satisfaction. The one who satisfied the just demands of God concerning the penalty for sin. Sent his son to be the propitiation, the satisfaction for our sins. Now in verses 25 through 27, there is a tremendous emphasis on the father who is mentioned five times in these verses. The concept of God as father and sovereignty go together. And there is a tremendous emphasis on the sovereignty of the Son over the administration of knowing God. This is God's great plan to reveal Himself to the world through His Son. This is God's plan. And God is only known in accordance with whom the Son wills to reveal Him. And this is a, this is a great emphasis on sovereignty here. Who's in charge of knowing? Well, God is sovereign over all, and he has given this to the Son. And whom does the Son will to reveal him? That's a good question, right? Now we get into all kinds of theological answers without considering the immediate context. Sometimes it seems to me. Whom does the Son will to reveal him? Who does the Son will to make God known to? Well, in the context, the immediate surrounding context, the answer is babes, those who come to Christ, and those who take Christ's yoke upon themselves. It is these to whom the Son wills to reveal the Father to. Tremendous emphasis on sovereignty, as I've already said. And yet, and yet, Immediately in the very next verse, Jesus goes on to speak in terms of human responsibility. As he extends the invitation to the elect. Oh, excuse me. Yes, and broader. He extends the invitation to all to come to him. Well, why is he extending the invitation for all to come if he's really wanting to cut some out of the loop? Uh, It doesn't seem to make logical sense, does it? We see this interwoven tension between God's sovereignty and human responsibility throughout the Scriptures. Both are true, and the combination thereof is inscrutable. I love this quote from Robert Thomas. goes back some years. He has passed and gone to glory now. Robert Thomas, longtime teacher at the Master's Seminary, highly regarded theologian by almost all of us in conservative circles, But he said this years ago. The scripture furnishes numerous instances where God's sovereignty and man's free will interplay with each other. Both are biblical teachings. For man to try to alter either one to find a reconciliation is an attempt to eat of the the fruit of the forbidden tree. An attempt of man to escape his finitude so as to become like an infinite God. I think to put this all together, you have to be infinite God. And nobody gets God except God, as we've already noted. Might want to kind of limit yourself there. The best we as humans can do is accept the Bible's teaching about the absolute sovereignty of God, which we champion, and the freedom of men to make their own moral decisions whether to believe in Christ or not without changing either teaching. From the standpoint of human logic and philosophical reasoning, the two teachings are in conflict. But from a biblical standpoint, they are not. I am content to live with that tension. Many theologians are not, and they insist on, we got to figure this out. And if you don't figure it out like I figure it out, you're a heretic. Well, I just want to be a biblicist. Wherever the Bible, the, the tensions the Bible presents, at the end of the day, I often say, if I'm going to fall off on one side of the horse or the other, I'm going to fall off on the sovereignty of God because of Him and through Him and to Him are all things. God is sovereign, no doubt about that. He is the Alpha and the Omega. And yet... Under that umbrella, there is this reality of human responsibility that cannot be disposed of. In context, Christ has just expressed condemnation in the previous verses on those city that saw his mighty works. You know what that's called? Human responsibility. Human accountability. He didn't say, well, you know, since I, I haven't willed to reveal it to you, 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 I, you know, it's, it's too bad for you. I just, I just don't want to reveal it to you. 
No. Uh, there was accountability for the light that they had. It's not that they never had any light. They did. And for that reason, they were especially accountable. As Jesus said in John twelve thirty six, While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become the sons of the light. Personal accountability, personal responsibility. While you have the light, believe in the light. No one can ever say, well, the blame is on Jesus because he didn't will to reveal his truth to me. The accountability is on them because in their proudful self-wisdom, they rejected the truth. In pride, they rejected the light that was given to them and therefore the light was withdrawn. And consequently, they were left in the darkness of human pride, which is a very dark place to be. The overall emphasis in context is on how God sovereignly works in relation to human responsibility. And again, there's mystery tension there. God sovereignly makes his truth known through the Son. This is his plan, his mode of operation, and no one can thwart it. He calls people to repent and accept the Son for who he is and gives ample evidence to support this demand. However, the truth is ultimately hidden from the proudful self-wise, but is revealed to humble, dependent babes. This is how God works. The Son wills to reveal the truth of God only to those who humble themselves and depend on him. The proud, arrogant are never going to make it. In Luke 18, Jesus told a parable about a self-righteous Pharisee. In contrast to a humbled tax collector, the Pharisee prayed about how great he was. You know, he prayed, he prayed kind of to himself, almost, within himself. And uh, he prayed about how great he was. Lord, I thank you I'm not like other people, especially like that wicked sinner down there. Uh, and, and I think we could, you know, the spirit of it is, uh, he could have well added about how smart he thought he was. Not only how good he was, but just, just a very smart guy. The tax collector was humbled before God, admitting he was a sinner in need of the mercy of God. Jesus concluded by saying this. There's a very important principle here that relates to our text. I tell you, this man, that's the humbled, repentant tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. Those proud people are going down. And he who humbles himself will be exalted, brought up to the status of children of God. There's the principle. The, the proudful are going down. Those that humble themselves are going to be exalted. Only those who humble themselves can know God and his salvation. Being proudfully self-wise defined the generation of Christ's day as a whole. And yet Christ held out this invitation to all individuals generally. And I love this. Verse 28. Come to me, Jesus says. All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The only one who can know the Father is the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. And with that thought still in mind, Christ invites all to come to him. All who labor and are heavy laden with the promise that if they do come, he will give them rest. I can promise you that if you come, he'll be there for you. you but you have to come. The promise is to whoever comes. And the point is the proud won't come. Come to me is tantamount to repenting and believing on him. To come is to recognize him for who he is. And on that basis, come recognizing him as the God source of rest. John 6, 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. And he who believes in me shall never thirst. You see here, Jesus clearly equates coming to him with believing on him. The object of faith is not a church, it's not a sacrament, it's not a creed or a clergyman, but rather Christ himself. Did you catch that? Come to me, Jesus said. 
Salvation is in a person, and his name is Jesus. I can't save you. The baptistry can't save you. We thank the Lord for our new baptistry, but it can't get you to heaven. You have to come to Christ. Acts 4.12. Nor is there salvation in any other. There is no other name, that, no other person, no other person under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You have to come to the Savior. He alone is the Savior. 1 John 5.12. He who has the Son has life. There you go, in a nutshell. He who does not have the Son does not have life. You either have Jesus or you don't have him. And if you have Jesus, you have life. And the, and the invitation is to all who labor and are heavy laden. Note the invitation is not merely to some, but rather to all. The one condition is that we must come. And this is throughout the scriptures. Isaiah 55, 1. Ho! Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you have no money. You, you have no means. You have no money. Come, buy, and eat. Yes, come, buy, Wine and milk, without money and without price. How do you buy without money? Without resources? Well, you come on the basis of grace. Uh, someone has paid for you. So you can go in. Your way's been paid in. And, and Jesus paid the way. Last invitation in the Bible, come. Revelation twenty two seventeen. the Spirit and the Bride say, come. Let him who hears say, come. Let him who thirsts, Come. Whoever desires, you got to want to. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. You have to come. And of course, that doesn't happen apart from divine intervention. No one on their own ever seeks after God. But when God is calling, you must respond. You must come. As Hebrews 3, 7 and 8 says, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Personal responsibility enters in. If you hear his voice, you've got to respond. The invitation is to all who labor and are heavy laden. The word labor is sometimes translated as weary. It has the idea of being exhausted uh, through strenuous toil or struggling. Heavy laden is the idea of being burdened down or, or overloaded with a, with a beast of burden. In fact, I thought about bringing uh, a children's version of Pilgrim's Progress. You know, a lot of times on the cover you got, you know, the one who becomes Christian carrying this heavy, heavy load and he's burdened down. That's the picture. It's the idea of being burdened down or overloaded like a, a beast of burden. Now, some think the emphasis here is in relationship to sin and its consequences, while others think the emphasis is on the bondage of Jewish legalism. Both certainly apply and the one involves the other. In the greater context was a burdensome legalistic religious system. In Matthew 9.36, we saw that Jesus was moved with compassion because he looked on the multitudes. Because they were weary, the idea there is, or harassed, like sheep without a shepherd. Judaistic legalism was hard. Matthew chapter 23, verse 4 for they bind heavy burdens hard to bear. This is the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes. They bind heavy burdens hard to bear and, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. Let me throw this rule, that rule, this rule, this legalistic principle. Acts 15.10, Now therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? In reality, what Jesus is asking them to do is jettison the lordship yoke of their religious legalism and come to him as Lord, and he would give them rest. It's all a matter of who or what is going to be Lord of your life. Note that rest here is a gift. Christ says, I will give you rest. He's giving it. It's a gift. You don't earn it. You don't work for it. You simply come to him and he gives it to you. He, as the sovereign Lord, has the authority to give it to you as a gift. If you will but come to him. Trying to work your way to God is nothing but exhausting and a very heavy burden to bear. 
all legalistic systems are systems of burden. What a relief we have in Jesus Christ, who gives us rest simply for coming to him in faith. The law was given by Moses, heavy burden. Grace and truth came by Jesus Christ, sweet relief. Now, it must be the right kind of faith involving repentance, which the context makes clear. But the only condition for entering into Christ's rest is coming to him in faith. Now, as a footnote, uh, some see here an echo from Jeremiah 31, 25, where God promises satisfaction for the weary soul in close connection with the promise of the new covenant. Others see an echo from Jeremiah 6, 16, where God invites the people to walk in the good way and thereby find rest for your souls. And this good way ultimately leads to Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Those who rest in Jesus have ceased from their own works in trying to get right with God. That's why we're resting, right? We're not lugging that heavy load like pilgrim, uh, you know. No, we've laid it down. I'm, I'm now resting in Jesus. Hebrews chapter 4, 9 and 10. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. It's a rest for you. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. I'm not trying to work my... That's a burdensome way. That's a legalistic way. I'm resting in Christ's rest. I've come to him and he has given me rest. However, note that the thought of Jesus is not complete here. As it continues on into verses 29 and 30. Christ continues. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. To come to Christ is to come on his terms. It comes recognizing him for who he is, as my Lord, that is my master, and that I am now his disciple. A disciple is a learning follower. Coming to Christ involves becoming his disciple, as the Great Commission makes clear. Go, therefore, and make disciples, baptizing them. John MacArthur says, in ancient writings, a pupil who submitted himself to a teacher was said to take the teacher's yoke. Thus, the yoke was a common symbol of submission. In Judaism, it was a common metaphor for the law. And now Jesus applies it to himself. Coming to Christ, in effect, meant exchanging the yoke of the law for the yoke of himself. That's really what he's saying they need to do. The essence is this. What is going to run your life? Is it going to be Jewish legalism? Or is it going to be Christ? Who or what is going to be Lord? That's the ultimate issue. Paul, a very religious Jew, I mean, the most, among the most religious, he said in Philippians, recounting his testimony, he said, yet indeed I also count all things, all his religious credentials, I count all things lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, more literally dung, that I may gain Christ. There has to be an exchange for you to have Christ. And Paul gave up on all the the religion, all that yoke under the law. That's not going to get me there. And did you catch, for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord? And that's a matter of faith. Verse 9, and be found in him not having mine own righteousness, which is from the law. There's the yoke that was previously around all the Jewish people. But that was just through faith in Christ. The righteousness which is from God by faith. Coming to Christ involves entering into a yoke relationship with him, acknowledging that he has the sovereign right of control. Now we must learn and grow in this role, but in salvation we enter into it. There is a recognition of him for who he is as Lord and Savior. D.A. Carson says this, The yoke put on animals for uh, for pulling a heavy load is a metaphor for the discipline of discipleship. 
If Jesus is not offering the yoke of the law, neither is he offering the freedom from all constraints. The yoke is Jesus' yoke, not the yoke of the law. Discipleship must be to him. This is a great point. As believers, we are no longer under the yoke of the Mosaic law. But this does not mean that we are under nothing, as some today want to really mess up the whole doctrine of grace. It does not mean we're under nothing. It does not mean that we're under no yoke at all. Now, as believers, we are under the law of Christ, as Paul indicates in Galatians 6, 2. While we are freed from sin, we are now the slaves of Christ, 1 Corinthians 7, 22. While sin no longer is our master, Christ now is our master, and we are his disciples. Those who have truly come to Christ are now under his yoke. You see, a yoke is a nick harness for two. Most commonly, oxen were yoked together to do work in the field. You understand a yoke is, right? There you go. The New Testament instructs believers not to be yoked together in fellowship with unbelievers. And there's certainly a principle related to marriage, and we make all kinds of of applications. Really, in context, Paul's talking about working together in fellowship with those who are unbelievers in, in, the, in, in worship and in, in fellowship. The idea here of being yoked is to be in union together. In coming to Christ, we yoke up with him. We enter into union with him. The New Testament constantly emphasizes that we as believers are now in Christ. The rabbis referred to the yoke of the law, but here the metaphor of yoke refers to discipleship. As we enter into this yoke relationship of discipleship with the Lord, the result is that we now begin to learn from Christ. It's a learning relationship that we enter into. He is the master teacher, and we are his disciples. And what do we find as we enter into that relationship? Do we find him to be a harsh taskmaster? And that being in union with him is hard. No, as we learn from him, we find him to be gentle. And lowly in heart, resulting in rest for our souls. Gentle is sometimes translated as meek. Lowly in heart, as humble in heart. Sometimes the idea of gentleness to the Messianic servant passage is back in Isaiah. But what a beautiful picture of graciousness it is. He is not a harsh taskmaster, jerking us around in an abusive manner. Rather, he is gentle and humble in heart. Think about who he is as the sovereign Lord. Boy, he could really jerk us around if he wanted to. Oh, my goodness. But he doesn't. Think about this. The sovereign Lord overall is humble in heart. Oh, that we as under-shepherds might be more like him. We see this in relationship with his disciples. He was ever amazingly patient with those slow people, such as we are. He was tolerant. He was gracious. And yet, it is always evident that he is the Lord who is in charge. (laughs) That was clear. It is great to be yoked up with such a person. He is totally in charge, and yet he's gentle and not forceful in his dealings with us. And in this yoke relationship, we learn to be like him. We too learn to be gentle and humble. And in doing so, we find the rest for our souls. Now, let's pause here for just a moment. There is a positional reality of rest that we enter into upon coming to him. That's verse 28. This is our eternal position in Christ. But we need to learn to walk in the good of it. As we then enter into this yoke relationship with Christ, there's also the reality of practical sanctification in which we learn to find rest in him in our daily experience. Both are found in Christ. So note the connection of thought between verse 28 and verse 29. There's a connection and yet a distinction. 
Verse 28 is dealing with justification. Verse 29 goes on to deal with sanctification. They are related and yet distinct. Listen to this quote very carefully. It comes from John MacArthur. Justification is an event, a one-time event. Sanctification, a process. The two must be distinguished but can never be separated. God does not justify whom he does not sanctify. And he does not sanctify whom he does not justify. Both are essential elements of salvation. The reality of it and then the fruit of it. We see that balance here in Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 and 29. In verse 28, we have the rest, or we might call it the peace. The rest with God that comes in justification at the moment of saving faith when we come to Christ. It is a rest given to us by Christ at the time we come to him in faith. But then in verse 29, we have the rest or the peace of God that comes from learning from him. And we find rest for our souls in practical sanctification as we learn from him. The one leads to the other. In verse 28, Christ gives us rest. And in verse 29, we learn to have rest for our souls. Both are true. And both are born out of saving faith. One relates to justification, the other to sanctification. Coming to Christ involves Him giving us rest. Coming to Christ involves us taking His yoke upon us. And that begins a lifelong process of discipleship, of learning from Him. Are you tired? Burdened down by sin and the stresses of life? Are you burned out on religion and the demands of legalism? Come to Jesus. He's the answer. He offers rest. And then as you come to Jesus, realize you're entering into a a union relationship, a yoke relationship with him, in which you will learn from him. And he will teach you about his rest. He gives us rest from the penalty of sin. He gives us rest from the power of sin. Back up. He gives us rest from the penalty of sin, justification. He gives us rest from the power of sin, sanctification. And he will ultimately give us rest from the very presence of sin, glorification. I like this quote from Augustine. Thou hast made us for thyself, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. What a great quote that is. Verse 30. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The way of sin is hard. The yoke of the law is hard. The yoke of legalism is hard. But in contrast, the yoke of Christ is easy. I want to point out the obvious. Christ's yoke is his yoke. It's not our yoke. It's Christ's yoke. Two times Christ calls it his yoke in verse 29 and again in verse 30. He carries the load. It's his yoke. Yes, in union with him, we share now in this yoke. But it is, it is essentially his. And his yoke comes with rest. With rest. It's a yoke of rest. We positionally rest in a right relationship with God because of our union with Christ. No matter what comes, no matter what happens, that rest remains secure and unmoving. You can rest easy in this relationship. You can go to sleep at night, put your head on that pillow. You're yoked up with Jesus Christ. All is well at the end of the day. And regarding our practice, even in all the struggles and challenges of life, being in union with Christ means we always have him yoked up with us to help us. His yoke means we always have his grace available because he's available. And his grace is sufficient no matter what we go through. Being in yoke with him means that he, the Lord, is our shepherd, providing all that we need and therefore we shall not lack. 1 John 5, 3 says this, For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. I love that verse. 
they are not burdensome because what Christ commands of us, what he asks us to do, he also empowers us to do by the Holy Spirit who lives in us. You see, in Christ, we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Peter says, quote, his divine power has given to us all things pertaining to life and God. You know what that is? That's an easy yoke. That's the easy way. And his burden is light. Some translate this, my load is light. Whatever Christ asks you to carry is light because he is with you in the yoke. Christ with you makes all the difference. As Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. There's the key. Note he didn't say there would be no burden, but rather Christ with you in the yoke, it's light. It is what Christ gives you. And since it is his yoke, we can trust it is good. He has promised that he will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we're able to bear. He will not allow us to be crushed. He didn't say, well, I'm just going to let up on my end and let you just... Nope. His burden, therefore, is light. He is there to always do the heavy lifting. And he leaves the easy, light part for us. And as we learn from him, we more and more learn to rest, that is, depend upon him, which is why we find the way easy and light. Ed Glasscock says, Christ's yoke is not burdensome because his character is gentle and humble in heart. His service flows from grace, not legalism, from love, not judgmentalness, from gratitude, not trying to earn what is unattainable by human effort. You see, God never intended for us to bear life's burdens alone. A yoke is a neck harness for two. Christ invites us to yoke up with him. And in this, we find rest. The story is told of a man who was carrying a heavy basket along a dirt path one day. Because of the heavy load, the young man's son offered to help him. The father cut a large stick and placed it through the handle of the basket. His own end was very short and heavy, while his son's end was long and light. When each took hold of the stick, it was the father who essentially carried the burden. That is a picture of our yoke with Christ. He essentially carries it, which means it is easy and light for us. John Phillips, the Lord will never tax us beyond our strength, never impose a task beyond the ability he gives. He is on the other side of the yoke, and he carries all its weight. The responsibility is his. The results are his burden, not ours. The Lord is the kindest, most considerate master in the world. Come, take, learn, find. True rest, spiritual rest, is found only in Jesus. Yes, come, take, learn, find. Jesus invites... Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come. Stand and sing our concluding hymn.
gospel light, let it shine from shore to shore. Send the light, the blessed gospel light, let it shine forevermore. Let us pray that praise be everywhere above. Send the light, send the light, and the Christ Thank you for praying for me. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning.